Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. We begin with a new investigation from our partners at Capitol Public Radio in Sacramento and NPR's California Newsroom. The focus is on Governor Gavin Newsom's signature wildfire prevention measure, 35 priority projects aimed at protecting the state's most vulnerable communities. In June, one was put to the test during the Lava Fire, one of the first large fires this season. As the lava fire threatened the town of Lake Shastina near the Oregon border, one of those priority fuel breaks didn't contain it, leaving evacuees stuck in dangerous traffic. Cap Radio's Scott Rod reports. Newsom's priority fuel break was cut along Highway 97, a two-lane road that separates the town of Lake Shastina from the Shasta Trinity National Forest. His administration said it was critical for the safe evacuation of residents. But the fire jumped the fuel break, and the road was blocked. When I arrived in Lake Shastina, I found Highway 97 surrounded by charred manzanita and pine trees. Helicopters ran water drops from the lake to the fire front a few miles north. The damage here was already done. The blaze destroyed 14 homes when it jumped the fuel break, spreading north in a fast-moving column. It also caused a crisis for people like April Williams, trying to evacuate the area. She stirred from an afternoon nap when a neighbor came banging on her door. And I looked outside and it was like all red and so much smoke and they were like, you have to get out of here now. And I'm like freaking out because I was not prepared, okay? Williams grabbed whatever belongings she could and set out in her beat up gold Escalade but she hit a roadblock trying to access Highway 97. It was scary because, you know, when you're leaving and you see everybody in the streets kind of like panicking and stuff, so I was just trying to get the heck up out of there. Everybody was kind of getting stuck, you know? But Williams wasn't supposed to get stuck. The fuel break was intended to prevent a repeat of the catastrophe in Paradise, where some residents burned alive in their cars trying to escape the 2018 campfire. No one died in the lava fire. Williams eventually reached an evacuation center in Wairika, but had the winds blown in a slightly different direction, evacuees snarled in traffic could have been caught in the fire's path. Cal Fire has boasted about the fuel break success in a tweeted video set to dramatic synthesizer music. The captions said the project slowed the fire and made it easier to evacuate residents. Cal Fire's Siskiyou unit chief, Philip Anzo, also told us the fuel break worked. I believe it was successful in the fact that we were able to, to move those people out of the area uh, safely and efficiently. Um, it also helped our firefighters um, create that, that location where they could, they could make a stand or try to make a stand against this fire. Anzo says that portions of the roadway were still available as an evacuation route, even though the main highway was closed. 
Newsom, who declined an interview request, is already under fire for dramatically overstating the impact of his wildfire prevention efforts. A Cap Radio NPR California newsroom investigation found Newsom claimed his priority projects treated 90,000 acres. In reality, Cal Fire completed work on less than 12,000 acres. In an email, a Newsom spokesperson acknowledged that fuel breaks are not a panacea. The state needs every tool in its toolbox, she said. Ken Pimlot, who served as chief of CAL FIRE until 2018, says state leaders need to be clear about the effectiveness of these projects. The community needs to fully understand the value of the field break, what the agencies are attempting to accomplish with it. It's not a force field. It's not going to armor you 100% against the impact of a wildland fire. He adds that climate change is only exacerbating this reality, as extreme heat and winds fuel fires. Pimlot advocates for building fuel breaks bigger and wider. Fire ecologists advocate for vegetation management on a million acres or more statewide, every year. The state and federal governments remain well short of that target. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Siskiyou County. During a wildfire, it's often not flames or heat that ignite a home, but embers. Wind can carry these small pieces of smoldering material for miles. Sarah Bohannon with our partner station, North State Public Radio in Chico, has more on how to protect your home. Embers cause anywhere from 60 to 90 percent of home ignitions in a wildfire. That's according to Megan Kay, the outreach coordinator for the Living with Fire program at the University of Nevada Cooperative Extension. She says keeping your home from collecting debris is one of the simple ways to help keep it safe. Because debris buildup, whether it's in a flower bed or in your gutter or around your skylights, all those things are basically just kindling. So if an ember were to get in there, and ignite, then there's more chance of fire actually entering the home. Kay also recommends closing vents and eaves, which are some of the easiest places for embers to enter a home. And those are usually around your crawl space where people like to put vegetation. So if that vegetation right around your house ignites, then it's basically just going to be shooting embers up into your attic and into your crawl space. She recommends choosing vegetation that's green or fire resistant and making sure that you're checking for debris regularly so your home is ready if a fire approaches. This is something that you want to be doing year-round. If a fire is approaching, then you should be focusing on evacuating. And getting your family and animals out safely, Kay says, as well as the vulnerable people in your community. For the California Report, I'm Sarah Bohannon in Chico. Well, we have heard a lot about prescribed burning recently. These carefully lit intentional fires have benefits for wildfire risk and for the environment. But lighting them, like fighting fires, takes a lot of work and people. Hannah Hageman with the Santa Cruz Sentinel has been reporting about how prescribed fire is being used on the Central Coast. She joins us now. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Lily. So, Hannah, let's start with the basics. What is prescribed burning and how does it work? So prescribed burning is the use of fire in a carefully planned strategic way. So how it's used depends on what the goal is. You can burn to reduce wildfire risk. You can burn to encourage the growth of native plants or foods. And you can burn to create healthier forests. And you've been tracking efforts to ramp up these intentional fires in California. What have you found? Yeah, well, first, let's acknowledge that planned fire isn't new. Indigenous peoples established this practice thousands of years ago to prevent megafires from igniting, but also to cultivate 
foods and as a spiritual practice. And in the last century, we really saw the focus come to fire suppression, putting fires out um, rather than how fire can be used positively as a tool. So here's Phil Dye with Prometheus Fire Consulting. He was at a prescribed burn run by the Central Coast Prescribed Burn Association, or PBA. We've tried putting them out for 100 years, and it hasn't worked, and it's not going to work. Um, so instead, we have to learn to live with it. Hopefully, the more people do this, the more PBAs that are formed, the more homeowners... Um, learn to see fire and all of its different elements. So now we're seeing this resurgence of the practice. And I think largely that's in part because, you know, these climate driven mega fires have really affected all of us and people are looking for something to do about it. And we heard Phil Dye refer to those so-called PBAs, prescribed burn associations, in that soundbite you just played. And really also amazing to hear the sound of, of fire in the background. You yourself joined one of these groups, these PBAs. What made you do that and what is it like? You know, last year's CZU Lightning Complex fire really changed uh, life here in Santa Cruz County and it, it affected all of us. And it, I felt like I needed to do something beyond reporting. So yeah, I, I earned my Wildland Firefighter certification and I did that through the, the Central Coast PBA. And I recently was with them and worked and reported on their first prescribed burn in Watsonville a few weeks ago. And it was super interesting. It attracted all different types of people. There were ranchers, winemakers, you know, retirees with their firefighting certification, agency folks, and, and then firefighters. And they were all there to learn. This all sounds great. What is stopping? Stopping more of this from happening? There's a few things. So, you know, number one, for the benefits of prescribed burning to really take a hold in, in the wildfire risk area, ecologists say this burning needs to be happening all over, all the time, across all different regions. And then you also need a workforce. Like, think about firefighters. You know, those are thousands and thousands of people across the state. Like that, you need a workforce of fire lighters, people to lead the burns, people to light them, to do follow-up work. And then another thing is liability. You know, a lot of landowners can be hesitant for fear that if something goes wrong, they might be sued for a lot of money. So there's some legislation happening now to, to hopefully take the liability off prescribed burners so they can safely do their work, but not be so prohibited by those current laws. And everything we just talked about costs a lot of money, right? And and we've seen investments into prescribed burning, but advocates say it's just not enough. And it really requires consistent funding, not just these one-time type of investments. All right. Hannah Hageman, reporter with the Santa Cruz Sentinel and recent recipient of her Wildland Firefighter Certificate. <laughs> Congratulations on that, and thank you for this terrific reporting, Hannah. Thanks, Lily. Good to talk. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. We're going to turn now to the pandemic. San Francisco and Los Angeles are considering whether to follow in New York City's footsteps and mandate that people show proof of vaccination at indoor restaurants, shows and gyms. In San Francisco, Health Director Grant Colfax says it's something they are exploring. A number of businesses are already requiring proof of vaccination, and Colfax says the city supports those efforts. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, City Attorney Mike Fewer has written a letter to county leaders pushing for a vaccine requirement for certain indoor activities like dining and working out. While the county hasn't indicated whether they'll take that step, both Board of Supervisors President Hilda Solis and L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti have said nothing is off the table amid a recent spike in new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations due to the highly contagious Delta variant. A COVID-19 outbreak at a Northern California state prison has infected more than 100 incarcerated people in the last two weeks. It appears the case is spread at the Sierra Conservation Center in Tuolumne County after a prison employee came to work carrying the virus. KQED's Ted Goldberg reports. Advocates at the Berkeley-based prison law office say corrections officials told them that staff exposure appears to be the cause of the outbreak at the lockup. According to the state, 39% of staff at the center are fully vaccinated. That ranks among the lowest rates in the California prison system. A higher rate, 68% of those incarcerated at the prison have gotten the shots. A correction spokeswoman says none of the inmates there who now have COVID-19 have been hospitalized. The prison is among those that train incarcerated people to support the state's firefighting efforts. For the California Report, I'm Ted Goldberg. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you so much for listening. Support for the California Report comes from the law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and 
I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. <laughs>